the Guardian. Over the weekend, the UK saw thousands gather in London's Trafalgar Square to protest against coronavirus restrictions and reject any potential mass vaccination programmes. Placards scattered throughout the crowd rallied against the World Health Organization, Bill Gates and 5G. In Berlin, Germany, 38,000 people also gathered to protest against lockdowns, social distancing and the use of face masks. Early on in the outbreak, protests had already begun in the US. On the 15th of April, conservative groups in Michigan took to the streets to express their anger against shielding measures and the closure of businesses. Our community is struggling. My husband is on unemployment for the first time in our life. We want to go back to work. Time for our state to be opened up. We're tired of not being able to buy the things that we need, go to the hairdressers, get our hair done. The activity spawned similar protests around the country, many of which felt that the government's response to the pandemic included violations to their constitutional rights. The root cause of these issues are, of course, not new. In 2019, for example, the World Health Organization listed anti-vaccination sentiment as one of its 10 biggest threats to global health. Yet, the coronavirus pandemic appears to have acted as a trigger point inflaming tensions and bringing issues to the fore. But why has an outbreak of disease had this effect? One of the difficulties with the situation around COVID is that it can very, very easily flow into a situation of, of, of them and us. And of course, COVID itself affects the population unequally. I'm Nicola Davis, and this is Science Weekly. To understand the social psychology underpinning civil unrest and some of the reasons why a pandemic might increase such conflict, I spoke to Clifford Stott, a professor of social psychology at Keele University. Earlier this year, the UK government made available some of the reports from the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, or SAGE, uh, of which you're a part. One of these was looking at the risk of public disorder, which some people found a bit confusing. Um, Can you just talk us through why it was that you thought that COVID-19 and coronavirus could lead to public disorder? The reason we, we began to think about these issues in the first place is because these were considerations about the potential outcomes of uh, the government's and the UK's response to, to COVID. And I think that when we started to, to think about these things and to analyse from the perspective of what we know within science about the dynamics through which riots come about, that there was some considerable potential for rioting to develop. I mean, I think it's problematic because we need to to think about what we mean by the term riot as much as anything else. But in, in, in relation to an understanding of that word in terms of public disorder or confrontation in crowds towards police or other other targets, that there were some issues here about how... First of all, COVID itself affects the population unequally. 
that you're more likely to suffer from the virus and to die from the virus if you are somebody who comes from an area of low socioeconomic status, that you're from a poor background. And because race and class are intersectional, you're also more likely to contract and die from the virus if you're from a minority ethnic population. So it's also important to recognise that then when we think about the control measures that are being developed now, for example, in relationship to localised lockdown, it follows that you're more likely to be locked down if you're from a poor area than you are from a rich area. You're more likely to experience control measures uh, if you live in Peckham or Hackney than you are if you live in Kensington. I think that those things together, when they relate then to police enforcement of lockdown, there's quite serious underlying potential for that enforcement to create circumstances where crowds can become conflictual. Particularly over the coming months and and indeed years, when the impacts of economic decline also factor in here, that the widespread unemployment that's going to flow from the economic dip uh, is going to be another factor that amplifies the, the discontent in society that could, can flow into, into the emergence of, of confrontation and rioting. Given that some of these issues were sort of, you know, predicted or, you know, you were concerned about these, I wonder to what extent could could this have been mitigated against? I mean, as you say, it's clear that certain groups are more affected or at greater risk from COVID than others. So, and and it was clear that that then could create sort of inequalities and feelings of unfairness and so on. So to what extent could that have been mitigated against? What we know from our understanding of, of crowd psychology and um, its implications for policing, that's central to the capacity for the police to mitigate the potential for riot is their ability to, to engage in dialogue and negotiation. But often that's not simply with the police themselves, but through their capacity to generate local partnerships. And one of the things that we did very early in our analysis of uh, the potential for rioting was to make recommendations to the police about how they could go about mitigation through developing strong dialogue with local communities and and ensuring that the police are equipped to de-escalate in a situation of, of escalating uh, tensions and, and and potential confrontation. We've we've seen these things play themselves out already. Um, people listening to this might recall that the Black Lives Matter protests in, in in Bristol, where the protesters pulled down the statue of Colston, the police commander there took a decision not to intervene uh, with force, and he was widely. Uh, vilified really for for that decision but operationally it was absolutely the right thing to do because had he chosen to intervene in that circumstance it it probably would have led to confrontation during the crowd event itself but because of the meanings attached to that intervention i.e police intervening to protect the statue at a time of sensitivity about racist policing it could have fed into 
anger um, that may well have spread into areas like St Paul's in Bristol that have a history of, of, of rioting. Cliff, one thing that seems to have been really important in tackling COVID-19 here in the UK is this sort of sense of collectivism, of everyone pulling together, um, people making sacrifices. And, you know, we've heard a lot of stories about people really, you know, supporting each other to do just that. But I wonder, is there a danger of a sort of them and us mentality that could arise sort of eroding that sense of we're all in it together? Absolutely. One of the difficulties with the situation around COVID is that it can very, very easily flow into a situation of of them and us. And of course, the um, really powerful um, example of that was the situation around um, Dominic Cummings and, and, and his approach to going out under lockdown and so on which which arguably flowed into a a major breakdown of of, of trust in, in in the government and and a division well it's you know it's okay for, for them what about us and then what we also know is that enforcement of the regulations was much more powerfully applied to certain communities over and above others. So you were far more likely to be fined if you were black. You were far more likely to be pulled over if you're, if, if you're from a, a, a poor area of town than, than a rich area of town and so on. So that's the problem here is that it's not just the approach of government. It's also that the disease itself and the control measures Around which we try to control the uh, the disease have a, a way of constructing a structural relation that makes a them and us situation far more likely to develop. So this might flow, for example, in terms of of local lockdown. Why we need to think very very clearly about the need for ensuring that people who suffer wage loss. Um, from local lockdowns are, are properly compensated more so than is currently available to them through sick pay because that increases the potential for people to feel as though they're still part of a common situation and it undermines the potential for them and us situation to develop. When there are people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and minority communities who experience structural and health inequalities and over-policing, as, and that's been highlighted with COVID-19, is it not reasonable and expected that people will be unhappy and, and want to express that? You are absolutely right to think about the issue in that way because it exposes what the science tells us about why people riot. The first thing to bear in mind is that they're not mindless that these riots happen because people understand the world in a particular way. And that understanding of the world, the meaning that drives their conflictual action, is born out of a particular what we call structural reality, that you know these people are angry because they are disadvantaged. It's not an imagined thing. It's not an irrational, mad mob. It is an understanding that's born out of the reality of the world. 
And if we want to solve the violence, then we have to solve the reality of the world and get rid of that inequality through which then people come to understand the legitimacy of their social position. It's not just simply that people see the world in terms of them and us. It's that the relationship between them and us is illegitimate. That understanding of legitimacy is central, but so too is a sense of growing empowerment, which comes from a perception that there are lots of us in this situation together. And because we're together in time, place and situation, we can potentially do something about it. We can fight back. We can overturn the uh, conditions of our disempowerment and for short periods of time become the powerful. We, we can own the streets. We can command attention. We can have a voice through doing this crowd action. Structural inequality is an important factor, but it's not sufficient in itself to explain precisely where and why riots happen because that structural inequality is there all the time, but riots aren't. So we still need to, to understand um, the specificity of, of, of rioting and, and that... Uh, when when we when we study it is um, something that is born out of the circumstances of, of crowd policing over and above simply um, the the structural inequalities that uh, uh, are, are part of our everyday lives. Based on what you've been saying, the UK at various points during the pandemic has been close to you know, real civil unrest and there have been local issues to contend with. How hard is it to predict these things, to predict the possibility of rioting and the extent of that? Well, yeah, it's a very good question. And one I've responded to before, I think, by using an analogy, I think, is that, in a sense, riots are like the earthquakes. We don't know enough about earthquakes to be able to predict them. Well, for social sciences, rioting is, is, is much the same. They are, they're incredibly difficult, if not currently impossible, to predict. We don't, we don't understand enough about them. But we are learning more as we develop our research programs. So we understand a lot about the conditions under which rioting becomes um, more, more likely. We also understand, of course, that some of this potentiality is, is openly exploited. So we should not be surprised that in this context we find uh, right-wing groups openly agitating to try to uh, exploit the uh, underlying tensions and uh, underlying inequalities to, for example, blame people from certain ethnic minorities about uh, local lockdown or uh, other other things. Is there a concern about the legacy of COVID-19 on structural inequalities and therefore the potential for future unrest? I think what we all need to start facing up to is the stark reality of what dealing with the pandemic has taught us about what our future is going to be. I mean, let's be clear that we are not yet in any way, shape or form 
through this current crisis and the emergency response that has been in place for months now in terms of our civil contingency is now going to have to duplicate itself if we go into a no-deal EU exit scenario. So as of the 1st of January next year, we could be in another parallel mass emergency where we have also not just a pandemic civil contingency response in place, we also have a a Brexit um, civil contingency response in place with food shortages, medical shortages, um, all sorts of worst-case scenarios are are planned for and pre-prepared for. Don't forget that one of the problems that um, undermined our ability to respond to the pandemic was that we hadn't done a major national exercise on pandemic since, I think, 2016, because all of our capacity for testing and and scenario planning uh, was being done around Brexit. So as, as we move forward here, the future is not rosy. And we need to learn a hell of a lot about the way that we as a society have responded to the pandemic to gear ourselves up for that. And the real dangers, of course, within all of this is liberal democracy, drives towards equality, start to get pushed out the window. Thank you so much, Cliff. I think we've covered quite a lot and it's uh, been absolutely fascinating. You know, it sounds like such a complex, complex issue. I mean, one of the things- Thanks again to Cliff. As always, do keep sending us your questions on the science behind the outbreak by filling in the form found at theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions. We'll be back next week. Stay safe and see you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.